Okay, uh, well, thanks to all of you for coming here at 8.30 in the morning. I hope you've had enough coffee so far, um, because this should be an invigorating session. Um, the title, as you know, is uh, Books as Agents of Contact. And on the one hand, it seems that the statement could seem more obvious, if not trite, because we are, after all, all gathered here, some hundreds of people uh, on a weekend, precisely to talk about books. So true, books are an agent of contact in that sense. Um, yet in conceiving of this panel, I think Yael Andrash and I had something in mind that was more than simply positing the book as a pretext for encounter, and more even talking about the book as a text that scripts encounters. So around nearly 40 years um, today after Elizabeth Eisenstein's now canonical printing press as an agent of change, we find ourselves interested less in the notion that movable type might have spurred Renaissance Reformation and scientific revolution, and more on the question of how diverse technologies of inscription and their complex materiality actively structured communications and cultural contact at a global, and even as one presentation will suggest, perhaps even extraterrestrial scale. So most today have no trouble admitting that, for instance, social media plays a strong role in determining the rules and meaning of encounters with others, reweaving the very fabric of the social. So why is it then that we still seem to be so reticent to speak of books as agentive, to speak of bookish globalization and bookish sociality, in contrast to digital globalization and digital sociality? What was the geography of a world connected not by tweets but by books? In posing these questions, I think there are a few points to bear in mind. Um, first, contact itself needs to be contextual or, or conceptualized, uh, not in the sense of any smooth understanding, but rather as the always lurking possibility uh, for violent misunderstanding. Contact, after all, generates friction and friction energy, energy that can be equally as destructive as it is useful and productive. Second, uh, the fictional energy of bookish contact occurs at multiple geographical levels that are latent, um, I would suggest, or we would suggest, in the physical object of the book itself. Um, the book as an object is a territorializing and a deterritorializing hybrid. It binds together materials, technologies, and labor from far and abroad, letters from Goa editors uh, in Rome, Chinese paper, German engravers, Italian leather, English capital. And it congeals these forces to create a virtual world in its own pages. Finally, as it circulates and survives, books trace new and unforeseen itineraries, dispersed and reconstituted from hand-to-hand, -hand, collection to collection, dismembered, reassembled, and reinvented for new audiences and new locations. But differently then, uh, the ultimate goal of examining books as agents of contact is for us to investigate how books as media technologies and material hybrids allow us to draw new maps of globality and explore unexpected geographies. So this is kind of conceptual um, um, summary of the, the type of goals we have in mind, perhaps for later discussion. But I'll turn the floor now to Andras, who will introduce the panelists for us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hi, good morning. Um, so I'm going to introduce the three panelists um, in the order they are going to speak. And then um, after the um, um, papers, Isabel Hofmeyer um, kindly offered to, to um, give some comments. Um, so the first, first speaker is uh, David Mervart who is an associate professor at the Universidad Autónoma de Madrid and a member of the EU-funded international research consortium East Asian Use of the European Past. Previously, he taught at Heidelberg 
University for six years and held fellowships at the universities of Cambridge, Leiden, Zurich, and Tokyo. He has published in English, Japanese, and Spanish on intellectual history of on the intellectual history of early modern uh, of the early modern period, with particular focus on 18th century Japan with the World Wide Web of Knowledge. Uh, let me give you all three um, panelists uh, while this is coming up. <laughs> um, Priyasha Mukopatai uh, research uh, focuses on South Asian literary and book cultures. Um, she is currently attempting to write a history of reading for South Asia by tracing the circulation of unread and partially read texts in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. She is the co-editor of a volume of essays, The Global Histories of Books, Methods and Practices, from Palgrave Macmillan in 2017, and it really just came out. I think I just saw leaflets about it uh, a week ago. Since, and since 2016, she has been a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows. And uh, last in the order of appearance um, is John Blakinger, who's a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Art History and the Society of Fellows in the Humanities at USC. His research probes the intersection of art, science, and technology in the context of wartime and Cold War militarization in the United States, focusing in particular <coughs> around the figure of Gerd Kepesh and the Center for Advanced Visual Studies at MIT. And he's the author of Un Camouflage New Bauhaus, Gerd Kepesh et la Militarisation de l'image, which wins the prize for having words in four languages in it. <laughs> So, um, David, Piracha, and John. Good morning. Thank you very much for turning up for this uh, early slot, and thanks to the organizers for putting together this very intriguing panel. Uh, in the context of the bibliographic among disciplines, I'm here for the disciplines. I know very little about bibliography. I'm a straightforward historian. Uh, but I treat of uh, texts uh, in various material embodiments um, and uh, I wanted to show you, share with you a, a case study of one kind that I've been on for a couple of years now uh, and because I'm a novice in the realm of historical bibliography I will look forward to critical feedback on you know what, I, what kind of sense I'm trying to make of that. So let me give you First, the, the, the roughest of the outlines. I'm tracing a text which has this kind of career. It starts in Nechinsk in 1689. It travels actually overland through Berlin to Paris, where it's some, sometime in the 1700s, then in Amsterdam in the 1760s, then uh, through the Dutch colonial capital of Batavia, today's Jakarta, sometime in the 1760s possibly, and by 1780s it's in Nagasaki, translated there in 1805. Um, and what I'm trying to look at is the, the, all the possible embodiments and conditions of possibility for this rather vertiginous trajectory. So what is this? The text starts its career in, uh, outside of this place, the, uh, the town of Nechinsk, which is really little more than a fortified little hole uh, in the middle of uh, nowhere in the upper reaches of the Amur River. It's actually so remote that even today Google doesn't know how to get there from Beijing. <laughs> but in uh, 1690s this place suddenly uh, acquired some sort of 
international prominence because it's the place where the Kangxi Emperor sent his mixed Manchu Chinese embassy to try and negotiate the peace with the obnoxious Russians who were sort of penetrating in the uh, Amur Basin territory. After some skirmishes uh, around the towns like Albasin and Nyechinsk, little fortresses, um, a, a delegation was sent to Nyechinsk uh, after previous exchange of letters with the, uh, the, the young uh, Tsar Peter to be the Great, and uh, uh, two Jesuits were importantly for our purpose dispatched with the embassy to facilitate the communication with the Russians because it was assumed that the Russians won't speak much Manchu or Mongol or uh, Chinese. Um, and the Jesuits who had been at the Kangxi court for a while had taught themselves all those languages and could communicate in Latin with the what was hoped to be some of the more civilized members of the Russian embassy. Um, which they did. So in uh, uh, 1689, the late summer, actually around this time, uh, well, we are later than the late September, uh, a peace was negotiated and concluded successfully uh, between the two embassies. Now, we know quite a lot of this event because one of the Jesuits, uh, Jean-Francois Gerbillon, a French father, kept a very detailed log of the long journey to from Beijing of the several weeks long torturous negotiations which were at several points uh, about to break down and of the long journey back from Nyechinsk to uh, Beijing. And that text is the text that concerns me. Uh, it sounds like a relatively modest and uninspiring piece of text but it um, has some unexpected global trajectory and this is the trajectory. The text first gets sent as a letter. Uh, Gerbillon writes it in, in his trained late French humanist hand on presumably a uh, Chinese paper in Chinese ink. I don't have the letter itself, so I can't show it to you. Um, and he entrusts it to the hands of the Russian ambassador to deliver it back in Europe. Um, he's hedging against the uncertainties of international uh, correspondence delivery. Uh, so he's sending several copies by several routes, as you would do in the 17th century. But the Russians, um, for whatever reasons, uh, decide not to deliver the letter and rather leak its contents, which uh, displays grave tensions within the Jesuit mission between the newly arrived French and the uh, missionaries, not just Portuguese, but operating under the Portuguese king's Padroado in the East Indies who regard the East missions and China missions as their exclusive territory. So it's, it's supposed to be damaging leakage for the Jesuit order. Um, and as such, it spreads quite quickly through the diplomatic and intelligence, foreign intelligence channels from Moscow westward. Um, we know of this because the person who tells us uh, about that is uh, uh, Gottfried Wilhelm von Leibniz who intercepted the letter sometime in 1695 or so in Berlin. He was well connected to the uh, Prussian ministerial circle, so he got the letter, uh, a copy of the letter from somebody in the, in the government. And he attached such importance to it that he said it might, the Nielchinsk event, how I finally described Michel Vion's letter, might prove to be the most momentous event 
since the re-establishment of the Roman Empire by Charlemagne. And he went on to print a Latin translation, his Latin translation, of the original French letter in his famous Novissima Sinica, uh, self-published in uh, 97 and republished in 99. Uh, the reason uh, Leibniz attached such a momentous importance to the, uh, to the, the letter was that uh, uh, he believed that this opens up the European Republic of Letters to become a truly global Republic of Letters reaching as far as the Pacific Ocean and uh, he encouraged the Jesuits to try and work with the Kangxi Emperor to establish a, 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 an academy of which uh, Europeans as well as Manchus, Tatars and uh, Chinese could be members. The next stage takes us to Paris. Um, it was Leibniz actually who delivered the letter uh, to the Jesuits in Paris uh, who were still waiting for news of what happened uh, in the early 90s um, because the French Jesuits were under uh, information blockade by the, the Portuguese clique and uh, the Jesuits in France by the end of the century were in a bit of a squeeze from the various rival parties uh, this is the very famous Querelle uh, de Rite, the, the Chinese rights controversy, which ostensibly is about technicalities of missionary practices in the East Indies missions, but really it's about what kind of shape Christianity, Catholic Christianity, could have in the global world. Um, the Jesuits were defending a kind of inclusive uh, practice of Christianity which has room for various local cultural practices, while the uh, opponents, Dominicans and uh, the members of the like uh, Société de Mission Étrangère were against them, but often it was for reasons that had more to do with local French politics than with actual missionary strategies. Bien as may, what matters to us that the material of Javion's report from Nechinsk was used as, a, as part of pamphlet war, one of the biggest pamphlet wars in early printed European culture, uh, in the 16, late 1690s, uh, the Querelle de Rite, the, the rights controversy. Uh, however, um, the Jesuits basically lost out in this, in this, uh, uh, in this game. Um, Charles Le Gobien's uh, Histoire de l'Édit de l'Empereur de la Chine, which was a uh, history of the supposed grant of a credit of tolerance, of, of an edict of toleration by the Kangxi Emperor, um, used Gerbillon's letter material to sort of carve space for legitimation of, of the, uh, the Jesuit uh, uh, missionary strategy. And um, this is too complicated to explain, but basically the, the, the storyline is we are uh, engaged with the, the powers that be and uh, we are present at the Beijing court and we are collaborating with the ostensibly um, uh, heathen ruler um, but in exchange for that uh, like we did at Nechinsk but in exchange for that we get uh, privileges like we uh, did in gaining the, uh, the Edict of Toleration in uh, 1692. Um, there's a, there's a sort of political process in 1700 at the Sorbonne um, Faculty of Theology where uh, Le Gobien's uh, pamphlet with Gerbillon's text in it is uh, sentenced as blasphemous 
contrary to the, uh, Christ, the true religion and uh, uh, totally unacceptable. Uh, and a few years later, in 1704, the new Pope, Clement XI, joins the judgment of the Sorbonne faculty, and from there on, the fortunes of the Jesuit China mission and of the Jesuit order itself uh, is under slow decline, which will take most of that century to complete. So, Gerbion's text, uh, career as a as pamphlet material is over, but that doesn't mean that the Jesuits have no more use for that. Uh, the Jesuits are very active members of the Republic of Letters, and uh, they are anxious to be heard, and they're using the materials of the reports from the overseas missions to broadcast uh, uh, into the uh, into the Republic of Letters, uh, la description géographique uh, and so on, uh, de, de l'Empire de la Chine, uh, de la Tartarie chinoise uh, by Jean Baptiste Duald is the most famous anthology of uh, reports from China put together by another Jesuit in Paris who had never been to China himself, uh, and uh, he used. Uh, Gerbion's report from the journey to Mierczynsk in 1689 as part of his materials in the fourth book in the quarto edition of, uh, uh, of uh, Duald. This is immediately translated into, into English. It's read widely all over the place. Um, one of the known enthusiastic users of the Jesuit material is the very anti-Jesuit uh, Voltaire. Um, he attaches great importance to the Nyachinsk moment. Um, he cites it several times in different places in Histoire l'Empire de Russie and in other works on China, on Chinese and European history. Um, Voltaire, like all the bright lads of Catholic Europe, was educated by the Jesuits but turned away from them and would horrify his teachers by uh, using the Jesuit Nyachinsk material to make statements like, uh, it's clear that all the rational human beings, if given chance, uh, will arrive at the knowledge of the same supreme being, uh, a conclusion that he arrives at by reading Gerbion's uh, report that at the end of the peace negotiations, the Russians and the Chinese embassies swore uh, on the peace, swore the peace in the name of the same God. There's also a, a, a moment um, in, uh, in a kind of world historical, um, of, of world historical importance uh, in this, uh, in that the region where uh, the peace is negotiated, Tartary, is of course the officina gentium, the, the place whence uh, at uh, irregular intervals hordes of wild galloping uh, barbarian invaders emerge and invade the civilized, uh, the civilized uh, world to the south, uh, west, and east of there. And this unknown dangerous space is finally being closed up at this point in history. There will be no more barbarian invasions, uh, and uh, civilization can happily flourish to the enlightened Voltaire. So now that the Gerbion report is conveniently reconfigured as a neutral travel report uh, from an unknown part of the world. It can be uh, reused as such. Um, uh, Antoine Francois Abbe Prévost, the famous author of, uh, uh, of Manon Lescaut, 
when he finds himself bankrupt and uh, running from uh, uh, creditors and uh, um, adultery charges, um, looking desperately for a source of income, uh, enters into a, an agreement with the famous Dido publisher in, in Paris to create a l most comprehensive uh, collection of travel reports to date. And for the following decade or, and more, he goes on putting together this 15-volume series, uh, Histoire Générale des Voyages, uh, published in Paris from late 1740s. Um, it's very successful. It's actually, at the time, probably the most successful uh, of Prévost's uh, works. He, he's probably most famous for this rather than for any of his novels. And it's so successful that it immediately appears in an un, uh, uncertified, unallowed um, Dutch version from a uh, publisher in uh, The Hague, Peter de Hont, somebody that Voltaire is also complaining about a lot. Um, and uh, once the Dutch version is around, oh, the way to Nagasaki is uh, fairly straightforward, means that somebody from the Dutch East India Company, this, fell, this early uh, international uh, multinational, takes it in his luggage from Amsterdam via the Dutch East India Company, East Indies capital, Batavia, today's Jakarta, to Nagasaki. Uh, this is a Dutch ship arriving at the end of the summer. It's uh, yearly to one or two Dutch ships per year uh, arrive from Batavia to Nagasaki. And at the bottom here is the famous Dejima trading station, which is a permanent business representation uh, in Nagasaki. Um, the uh, contact between um, the Dutch East India Company representatives and the Japanese was business, of course, primarily, but the, uh, the company was not trying to prevent its employees from uh, doing a little bit of private trading. And books were actually an uh, interesting commodity. There was good demand in Japan for Dutch books, Western books in Dutch language mostly. Um, and there was an environment of um, readers of Dutch due to the fact that the uh, Tokugawa government kept fairly close tabs on the contract with the foreigners. Uh, so these guys who carry one sword, uh, like I point to that, uh, that guy in the black uh, overcoat about the middle of the, of the picture with the one sword. That's, a, that's an official interpreter, somebody who is effectively um, an official of the Tokugawa government, um, whose hereditary job it is to translate between the Dutch businessmen and the Tokugawa authorities. So in a box like this, uh, the anthology, the Dutch version of the uh, Dehont uh, Prevo anthology must have arrived in Japan. Uh, we know that there were several, actually, uh, sets of those that arrived because um, we have this catalogue record where somebody um, is trying to order it. The Dutch title of the, of the anthology is here. Um, a um, warlord collector from marginal little domain of Hiado of the Western Kyushu is trying to get hold of the book because he had it had a lot of pictures and copper plate engravings and maps, which is something he likes. He's a collector of books. 
he can't read a word of that himself, but uh, he likes uh, the books as the collectibles. Uh, this is a very well-documented library. We have acquisition records. Uh, we know how much he paid for the books, typically a lot. Uh, we have a comprehensive catalogue of the library of several thousand Chinese, Dutch, and, um, and um, uh, Japanese volumes. So we have the set in Japan uh, sitting on the bookshelf of a warlord collector. Uh, collector's library um, and probably nothing would come out of it if in 1804 um, the Russian admiralty ship Nadezhda did not materialize in the Nagasaki harbor um, with this person here uh, Nikolai Rezanov uh, demanding in the name of the Russian emperor the opening of uh, trading and, uh, and uh, diplomatic relations in this context, a person who has Dutch, by the accident of his, of his uh, employment as a professional interpreter in Nagasaki, one Shizuki Tereo, decides to translate these about 25 pages of Jabion's report from its Dutch iteration, and uh, it gets not really published because this kind of material is too sensitive to get published, but uh, circulated in a manuscript copy. When I say manuscript, I mean a fairly nicely appointed kind of manuscript with maps and even some illustrations in it. This is, uh, this is something that is meant to look like a, a, a published book. Uh, it circulates quite widely um, and uh, by 1850s we find it actually consulted by the Tokugawa negotiators who, um, uh, who are in, uh, locked in negotiations with the Russians about their own <coughs> actual first peace treaty. So I'm out of time. Uh, just, uh, just one minute to say what I think this we are looking at. Uh, we are looking at a, uh, at a, not particularly early, I mean this keeps happening all the time, but we are looking at the establishment of one kind of synapsis which has made our world into what we intuitively recognize as a global marketplace for ideas, uh, shared imaginaries, um, be they constitutional democracies or suicide bomb attacks. Um, and this is just one fairly well-documented story. So what can we tell from this story? One thing that I think is, uh, comes out of this is the process is fairly accidental. It's full of vectors which are not in any sense inevitable. This is not some kind of geological process of inevitable globalization, westernization or modernization. This is uh, a sequence of fairly contingent events that contribute to things happening. Somebody collecting books because he likes them as aesthetic objects creates the condition of possibility of somebody else being able to consult the book and make sense of, of the world. Um, so in view of that, um, and in view of this, uh, this sort of wide range of uh, material iterations and linguistic embodiments of this text that I'm looking at, I, I'm almost tempted to suggest to the organizers of the panel that rather than as agents of contact, uh, shouldn't we speak of books as loci of contact or, or means of, of encounter? Um, where the agency really is on the side of the uh, countless 
users, readers, collectors, middlemen, um, business representatives who want fancy-looking books on their corporate boardroom bookshelves, and so on. Thank you, and I'm looking forward to the debate afterwards. So I suppose while we search for the tech guy with the control panel, we, no, is the control panel there? Because I, I think he moved it. Okay. Someone took the control panel. I'll do the presentations on my computer instead of running it off of this. It's easier. Oh, he's okay. Well, in that case, yeah. Could you just switch this back? Yeah. Okay. So it's possible. Are we gonna have to keep that or not? No. Uh, so you want to use the house computer? Yeah, house computer for now. But maybe switch back again after the next presentation. Uh, just let the front desk know. Okay. So could we switch to the house computer? Okay. Thanks. talk about a group of people I've developed a rather morbid interest in. And um, the central person in this group of people was a woman called Helena Petrovka, Petrovna Blavatsky, who was a Russian occultist with a piercing stare, a murky aristocratic background, and suspect intellectual credentials. Her travels brought her to New York in 1873, where she met Henry Steele Alcott, who you can see in the photograph here who was a Civil War veteran turned lawyer and journalist. Their mutual interest in otherworldly affairs culminated in their establishing the Theosophical Society in 1875. Now, the society started out as not much more than calling up spirits, but it soon became a global movement that sought to restore Western civilization by connecting it with the mystic traditions of the East. By the end of the 19th century, it was well on its way to conceiving what its members called a universal brotherhood of humanity. So five years later, 
On September 29, uh, 1877, J.W. Bowton, a New York-based publisher, released Blavatsky's first major work, Isis Unveiled, a master, to the a master key to the mysteries of ancient and modern science and theology. In two octavo volumes running into 1,400 pages, Blavatsky claimed to have charted the world history of esotericism, providing a manifesto for the Theosophical Society. Tracing its way through Greece, Egypt, India, Tibet, and China, Isis Unveiled left little untouched. The Vedas, Thomas Huxley, Peruvian relics, and reincarnation were all considered worthy of its discussions. The first print run was 10,000 copies, and within 10 days, all of them were sold. But initial responses to Isis Unveiled were mixed. An early review in the Philadelphia Press declared it to be, quote, one of the most remarkable works for originality of thought, thoroughness of research, depth of philosophical exposition, and variety and extent of learning. But for others, the book was simply unreadable, poorly written, and ill-conceived. But most damningly, whispers began to emerge that questioned Blavatsky's authorship of the work. Some assumed Alcott had written it, and he gracefully denied this on several occasions. Others suggested that she'd found it and stolen it from the papers of the Baron de Palme after his death. Eclipsing the big question of who actually wrote Isis Unveiled, however, were these accusations, that it was completely plagiarized, and when sources were cited, they were second or third hand at best. So in this paper, I'm going to talk about the career of Isis Unveiled as a plagiarized book, looking at some of the specific accusations leveled at it, and more importantly, at the theosophical community's responses to these. Blavatsky's work was hailed as the first to uncover the eastern roots of Western mysticism, making, seem, making seemingly um, oriental ideas legible to a global anglophone public. But as we will see, Blavatsky's plagiarized book embodies rather the failures of cultural contact as failures of reading, and instead, falls back on the usual suspects of insufficient knowledge, broad pronouncements, and weak excuses. So Blavatsky's primary and most passionate accuser was a man called William Emmett Coleman, who between April and um, October 1891 published a series of very detailed articles about her work in the occult periodical called The Golden Way. I don't know if you can actually see um, Oh, you can actually, it's I think the third or the fourth um, um, entry in the table of contents there. Titled The Unveiling of Isis Unveiled, which was a play on words that few of Blavatsky's opponents could resist, these announced that the work was, and you can see the quote on the screen, a collection of wholesale plagiarisms such as probably has not been known before in the, world of the, in the literature of the world. Coleman had evidence to back these claims. In his reading, page after page of Isis Unveiled turned up passages copied directly from common works on esoteric thought and oriental philosophy. Blavatsky read books in translation, he said, and sneakily cited the originals. She wasn't even familiar with basic Hindu texts such as the Bhagavad Gita, to which she not only misattributed large portions of Isis Unveiled, but also insistently referred to as the Bhagavad Gita and spelt completely incorrectly. By Coleman's count, 1,400 books and periodicals had found their way into the work. 
Of these, Blavatsky, by her own admission, owned or only had access to about a hundred. Of the 2,100 quotes that appeared in the volumes, mostly obtained second or third hand from other sources, only 140 had been credited or quasi-credited, as Coleman put it. In his opinion, this was blatant fraud. Blavatsky's readers had been misled into thinking that she was an enormous reader, possessed of vast erudition, while the fact is that her reading was very limited and her ignorance profound in all branches of learning. Now, Blavatsky and her circle's response to such allegations of plagiarism may have been bizarre, but they weren't in some ways, given the nature of the Theosophical Society, surprising at all. And I'm going to look at two of these in the rest of this paper. So, in his diary leaves, A History of the Theosophical Society, Olcott dedicated several chapters to the writing of Isis Unveiled, hoping to satisfy its critics finally. While Isis Unveiled had the appearance of a solid scholarly work, he said, written either in the British Museum or the Astor Library in New York, Olcott declared that Coleman was right. It wasn't. Blavatsky had not read most of the books that cited or from which she'd borrowed. The work instead had come to her from, he said, the astral light, from her soul senses, from her teachers, the brothers, the adepts, sages and masters. Dictated to her by her spiritual guides, the Tibetan Mahatmas, Olcott described Blavatsky as a medium through which ideas, quotations, incorrect page numbers, and occasionally fruit on which to snack came streaming through. And this is, oh sorry, this is one of my favorite um, uh, passages from Olcott's description of the writing of the book. And he says, her page would be flying, her pen would be flying over the page when she would suddenly stop look out into the space with the vacant eye of a clairvoyant seer, shorten her vision as though to look at something held invisibly in the air before her and begin copying on the paper what she saw. The quotation finished, her eyes would resume their natural expression and she would go on writing until stopped by a similar interruption. The veracity of this declaration aside, Olcott's statement, corroborated by Blavatsky and other forums, is telling because it alters the terms of the plagiarism debate. Rather than fall into a vicious cycle of reading and not reading, the account of how Isis Unveiled was written throws reading out of the window completely. Instead, it replaces the absent book in Coleman's account, or rather the 1300 absent books, with the astral book beamed down in clairvoyant messages. Further, by admitting to not reading in Olcott and Blavatsky's accounts, admitting to not reading in Olcott and Blavatsky's accounts is not plagiarism at all. In fact, thought transference of this kind is not only a miraculous process, it is also superior to reading because it allows for a much more intimate bond with people, cultures, and history. In a letter to her sister Vera, Blavatsky describes the process of writing as such. Slowly and, gliding, slowly and gliding silently like images in an enchanted panorama, centuries after centuries appear before me and I am made to connect, to this, these, epochs with, made to connect these epochs with certain historical events and I know there, cannot be, uh, no, there can be no mistake. I am not I anymore, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, but someone else, someone strong and powerful, born in a totally different region of the world, 
And, uh, and as to myself, it is almost as if I were asleep or not lying by, not quite conscious, not in my own body, but close by, held only by a thread which ties me to it. And note the passivity in the description. So these images appear before her. She's made, almost forced to connect with these different cultures and epochs. So ironically, not reading, but, but rather receiving or channeling books that went into the making of Isis Unveiled brings Blavatsky closer to the worlds they represent. Plagiarism, thought transference, and not reading make an odd set here, providing Blavatsky with a heightened sense of wide-ranging historical and cultural connection impossible in an earthly world in which one is tied to the few books one has read. In fact, it is the absence of the material book, or rather in the presence of the astral book, that Blavatsky claims to achieve the highest mode of cultural understanding and contact. But for the wider reading public, what Isis Unveil did was create a space of cultural and textual mix uh, misrecognition that prevented readers, at least for a time, from realizing that by reading it, they were actually just reading passages produced verbatim from cheap and often incorrect works of pop orientalism. Now, before I go on to the next part, I missed a slide that I want to show you, so I'm just going to go back. So, um, so the, the bulk of, um, of Coleman's um, attack on Blavatsky was basically him going through Isis Unveiled, producing passages, and then figuring out where those passages were actually from. So here's a re really great example of that. So there's a passage from Isis Unveiled, and this is where it's actually taken from. And you see that there's, abs there's pretty much no difference between the two. And this is basically how Isis Unveiled unfolds over its 800 plus pages. <clears throat> so after the first installation of Coleman's critique was published, Blavatsky produced an article on the writing of Isis Unveiled in a magazine of which she was the editor, called Lucifer, in May 1891. In this, she presented another, more human excuse for the errors that Coleman took as her ignorance. She blamed her proofreaders. The book was too long to proof properly. The people hired by the publisher were obviously inadequate and clumsy. And the result was, in her words, the hideous metamorphosis of one word into another, thereby entirely transforming the meaning. She says, Can one wonder after this if Vishwaswata Manu became transformed into Vishwamitra, that 136 pages of the index were irretrievably lost, and that quotation marks placed where none were needed, as in, in some of my own sentences, and in, left out entirely in many of a passage cited from various authors? It's, 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 you know, I wouldn't be. It's it's an excuse almost worthy of a creative undergraduate student, <laughs> but yeah. So remember, however, that this was almost 15 years on since the first publication of Isis Unveiled in 1877, and so Blavatsky now also needed to explain why these errors hadn't been corrected in subsequent editions, which she did. The plates were stereotyped. And notwithstanding all my desire to do so, that is correct, the mistakes in the first edition, I could not put it into practice as the plates were the property of the publisher. I had no money to pay for the expenses and finally the firm was quite satisfied to let things be as they are. 
So now let's leave aside the unlikely possibility that shoddy proofreading could have converted the Vishwaswata into Vishwamitra. <coughs> if nothing else, there's no easy explanation for how Swata gets transformed into Mitra, and there's still two entirely legitimate people in, um, uh, in different Hindu texts. But that the world of Isis unveiled is a world lacking in cultural distinctions is by now unremarkable. But what I want to do is focus on Blavatsky's reference to stereotype printing, which, as you know, was a technique that used fixed metal molds, as Isabel Hoffmeyer and Sarah Nuttall, and more recently Brinalini Chakravarti, have drawn our attention to the loaded material word of the uh, loaded material history of the word stereotype. And I think Blavatsky's use of the stereotype as an excuse for the errors in Isis unveiled does something really interesting here. It is not in her account that, that she does not want to make right the errors of her text. It is that she cannot. Literally fixed, like the printing plates to which she gestures, the characters of the Orient tumble together in a predictable mess. The failure of cultural, of cultural understanding, and at a far more fundamental level of, of reading, is such that Blavatsky cannot distinguish between characters in her narrative, and this is transformed so tellingly into a material failure. And this reminds me in a different vein of a comment that Alcott made in his defense of Isis Unveiled. When praising the text's versatility, he also described the writing as, and I quote, a ceaseless rivulet, each paragraph complete in itself and capable of being excised out without harm to its predecessor or successor. For Alcott, this is a neutral and not a critical remark, though of course it implicitly describes plagiarism in its most basic form as mindless copying and collating. And it cannot but bolster the argument against the untidy mix and match patchwork quality of Isis Unveiled's attempts at cultural synthesis. And just to conclude, I can't but resist another printing metaphor. Olcott's cut and paste account sounds remarkably like movable type. Made up of blocks that are assembled, disassembled, and reassembled at will, Blavatsky's intellectual endeavor nevertheless becomes something of a parody of itself. True cultural <coughs> contact, both here and through the early examples in this paper, is blocked by the absent book, the irrevocability of the metal plate, the casualness of the typographical error, and scrapbook intellectual engagement. Thank you. That's fine. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so I'd like to start by just first um, thanking the organizers for the invitation to be part of this panel. Uh, <clears throat> and I also want to thank Isabel for her forthcoming response. <clears throat> In 1977, the scientist Carl Sagan prepared a gold-plated phonograph for NASA's two Voyager spacecraft. The purpose of this interstellar LP, called the Voyager Interstellar Record, or just the Golden Record, is to communicate with intelligent life beyond our solar system. It contains audio recordings, cheerful greetings, world music, and the sounds of Earth, 
from the clap of thunder to the bark of a dog, <clears throat> but also a portrait of human civilization in 116 visual images, each one encoded as a video signal. And I can go into more depth about how the images are encoded, maybe in the Q&A. Affixed to the side of the spacecraft, the records are now on an endless journey, hurtling into the deep unknown of interstellar space. So you can see it, I think, right there on the side, um, the gold disc on the side of the spacecraft. In 2012, the artist Trevor Peglin reimagined Sagan's project. He prepared a micro-etched disc for the Echostar 16 satellite. The disc, simply called the artifact, contains 100 images, each one inscribed on a tiny silicon wafer. And you can see the wafer in blue. Each image is actually very small, can be seen with a magnifying glass. Most of the images are deeply disturbing. Atomic bomb blasts, natural disasters, and depictions of warfare. Encased in a gold-plated aluminum shell and affixed to the side of the communication satellite, the artifact now circles the globe in a stable but lonely geosynchronous orbit. There it will remain, at least until the sun incinerates the Earth. The artifact waits patiently to be discovered by advanced aliens. To be sure, these projects are not books in any conventional sense. They are not bound in leather, not printed on paper or parchment, not even primarily textual. Actually, both projects did result in published volumes for public sale as part of their projects, but I won't be going into these books. Uh, <clears throat> both the record and the artifact function as books, despite their unusual formats. Like the encyclopedia or travel guide, they are intended to distill knowledge about a place and a people through a series of images, pages. Considered as books, they raise profound questions. What should a book for extraterrestrials even look like? Who will read these objects and how? In the vacuum of space, they are removed from all culture and all history, texts spinning without context. Can they speak at all? First, let me focus on the golden record. An initial table of contents suggests Sagan's very first ideas about the project. Start with the spacecraft, a self-referential place to anchor the entire collection, and then continue from essential molecules to the double helix, human figures, a dwelling, Times Square, the Sydney Opera House, the Taj Mahal, and then finally, the Milky Way. The record's final image uh, excuse me, the record's final image archive roughly follows just such an organization. DNA, cell division, an embryo, a family, a home, a city, the Sydney Opera House, the Taj Mahal, and finally outer space. This was the grand narrative of human progress, from micro to macro, from old to new, from simple to complex. Sagan arrived at the record's contents after consulting a range of scientists, among them Frank Drake, a Cornell astronomer, 
Philip Morrison, an MIT physicist, and Stephen Jay Gould, the esteemed biologist. He also reached out to science fiction writers, including Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, and Robert Heinlein. And perhaps not surprisingly, it is the science fiction writers who provided the most provocative response. In a letter to Sagan, Heinlein writes, quote, Picture is a sophisticated idea. Some human cultures appear never to have developed the concept. Is picture even a necessary concept of high level, i.e. space traveling, culture? Must we assume that a high technology ET, extraterrestrial race, can see? How about intelligent ETs that do not have some of our physical senses, sight especially, but do have some sense that we have only by instruments? How about a race with innate radar instead of sight? End quote. Without even engaging whether aliens exist, Heinlein questions the proposition that aliens would necessarily understand pictures or even see, let alone comprehend the elaborate technology of the phonograph. He further questions the universality of human truth itself. Quote, there are too many hidden assumptions about what intelligence is, what logic is, what universal truths are, including the silly assumption that two plus two equals four. From about 1920 to date, I have been seeing endless schemes for communicating across space with sentient ETs by radio, by geometrical diagrams, by carefully built up codes that started by establishing a number system and then worked up through simplest arithmetic and thereafter branched out into concepts assumed to be universal truths, such as atomic weights. After the first dozen or so of these schemes I have examined, I concluded that the ET was going to have to be much smarter than I am, for I have not seen one yet that I could break, other than through being human myself, with common cultural background, fairly advanced education, and practical experience as a member of a national code and cipher board. I became more and more of this opinion as I found more and more universal tru truths that turned out to be nothing of the sort, but instead were human cultural assumptions." End quote. Heinlein's comments bring me to my first claim in this talk. Given the unlikelihood of contact and the difficulty of transcultural, transspecies, and transgalaxy communication, the golden record is perhaps not just about the extraterrestrial, it is also about the terrestrial. The book, as an agent of contact, is ostensibly directed toward the other, but it is also directed toward the self and the same. It is also concerned with what we see, how we read, what we want to believe. Sagan tasked the scientific illustrator, John Lomborg, with compiling specific images. According to Lomberg, the team consulted, quote, coffee table and picture books, among them the World Book Encyclopedia, and such titles as The History of Toys, Birds of North America, The Family of Man, Plant Devouring Insects, and The Age of Steam, plus, quote, every issue of National Geographic back to 1958, end quote. The images reproduced from these sources are remarkably bad low resolution, blurry, poorly cropped. Anatomical diagrams have numbers identifying bodily organs and tissues, 
but lack a corresponding legend, maps with no key. Or take this one. The original from National Geographic depicts a pot of dolphins, but the image used by Lombard is extremely awkward. Are we underwater or above, looking at something large or small? Observing nature or a machine, a spacecraft, a submarine? Sagan's team lacked awareness of the most basic requirements for legibility and decipherability, never mind issues of content and meaning. But the record was also deeply problematic on issues of content and meaning. Sagan's biographer argues that, quote, the record reflects the emerging egalitarian and multicultural spirit of late 20th century America during the dawn of modern feminism, the high noon of third world assertiveness, and the afterglow of Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights activism, end quote. These are noble goals. And to be sure, there is evidence of Sagan's embrace of egalitarianism and multiculturalism. We must acknowledge the record's depiction of a black female scientist, even though she is not named, unlike white scientists, such as Jane Goodall, who also appears on the record. Another image shows smiling faces from around the world playing with a globe. Bland, but a nice idea. But despite these pictorial gestures, feminism and civil rights are mostly overlooked. Women are typically reduced to their biological functions as pregnant, giving birth, or breastfeeding. Non-Western peoples are often represented as noble savages, like the Bushmen hunters. This image appears as the evolutionary transition from animal to human. It was placed immediately following a photograph of chimpanzees, and there is Jane Goodall. If we understand the record itself as a tele teleological trajectory from micro to macro, from simple to complex, it is worth noting that, by contrast, the second to last image in the entire collection, at the pinnacle of progress, shows a string quartet, white musicians in formal wear, performing Western classical music, the height of civilization and good taste. Even, with, even when Lombard had putatively good intentions, he did not properly realize that. One image, for example, depicts girls wearing traditional dress. Lombard describes the image as Andean girls that represent, quote, more hands and faces from a different human gene pool and culture, end quote. In fact, these are not Andean girls. They are Guatemalans, as revealed by the image's original National Geographic source. The collapse of all others into exotic images of different gene pools and cultures is troubling. That the facts are wrong is only more so. The record also blatantly ignores human history. Sagan explains, quote, we reached a consensus that we shouldn't present war, disease, crime, and poverty. We decided that the worst of us shouldn't be sent across the galaxy, end quote. Sagan wanted an idealized portrait. Quote, we wanted to avoid any sort of political statement in this message, and a picture of Hiroshima or Milai Seemed, like a, seemed more an ideological statement than an integral part of an image of Earth, end quote. Of course, even bland visual representation is ideological. The Golden Records visual contents were thus completely anodyne, 
an image of human civilization as a boring utopia. My second claim in this talk is that the record's encyclopedic pretensions ultimately offered only a single normative perspective of human culture, that of the dominant West. Books, as agents of contact, are not neutral representations of the culture that created them. They are culturally constructed, even biased. By contrast, the artifacts, so I'm now moving to Trevor Palin's project, uh, the artifacts' visual contents are completely apocalyptic, an image of human civilization as a barbaric dystopia. War, disease, crime, and poverty appear explicitly and repeatedly. Repeatedly, excuse me. We find orphaned refugees smiling as they encounter the ocean after fleeing the Armenian genocide. We find the menacing spiral of the Ebola virus, gas masks from the First World War, rows of chickens in battery cages awaiting slaughter, the haze of an atomic bomb test at Bikini Atoll, children suffering from birth defects caused by Agent Orange. Pagelin's images operate somewhat differently than Sagan's, not in a linear structure like a traditional book, but as a complex montage, a series of contrasting filmic sequences, often juxtaposed against the golden record, but often this juxtaposition is only implicit. For example, Pagelin mimics the record's photograph of a horseback rider crossing sand dunes, so this is from the record, with a horse-drawn carriage crossing Nevada's Carson Desert. This is from the artifact, an image that registers the hubris of manifest destiny. The image in Peglin's artifact follows a photograph of the supersonic Concorde jetliner, which was retired from service after a fatal crash killed all passengers and crew in 2003. The Concorde is our horse-drawn carriage, our manifest destiny. So there's these complex relationships between the projects, even though often the connections are pretty subtle. Um, yeah. Likewise, the Golden Record includes an Ansel Adams photograph dated 1942 of mountains in Grand Teton National Park. Peglin shows a photo of Glacier National Park, also from the 1940s but he further compares it to a 2006 photo that reveals the dramatic effects of global warming. So you can see uh, how the glacier has disappeared due to climate change. Other images require more arcane knowledge to decipher. Peglin includes a drawing by astronomer Percival Lowell depicting the infamous Canali on Mars. Lowell believed that he had discovered alien canals while looking through a telescope, and so these are drawings of what he saw through the telescope lens. In fact, the canali Lowell saw were actually reflections of the blood vessels in his own eyeball. In his search for something out there, he was deceived by the images within, resulting in an absurdist self-mirroring. The fact that such images are very similar to those on the Golden Record, these depict sunspots, is to the point. Lowell's mistake is also Sagan's. In this way, Peglin deconstructs the communica communicative function of Sagan's project, challenging the idea that making contact across forms of life, galaxies in space, 
and the arc of time is even possible. On the Golden Record, there is a reproduction of Sir Isaac Newton's system of the world. The copied page epitomizes enlightenment reason. By contrast, Peglin offers a page from the dictionary of an invented universal language called Volapük, or World Speak, created in 1879 by Father Johann Martin Schleier in Baden, Germany. Schleier imagined all cultures conversing through a single master tongue. Needless to say, this never happened. Peglin follows this image with a detail from Peter Bruegel's Tower of Babel, the 1563 painting that illustrates the biblical tower created by a monolinguistic people who foolishly attempted to reach heaven. So it serves as a metaphor for the golden record itself. More than a few images on the golden record really do read as Babel, as gibberish. One bizarre image depicts a demonstration of eating, licking, and drinking as a surreal tableau with figures strangely suspended in ambient space. Peglin copies the image onto the artifact and places it next to the Tower of Babel. He follows it with others that visually echo the painting, filled with arch-like masonry, the Great Wall of China, and the Hoover Dam. My third claim of this talk should be obvious. Peglin's project is a critique of the golden record. It makes explicit the ideological statement and political statement so assiduously avoided by Sagan, revealing the myth, the myth of progress and of communication as babble, as nonsense. The book, as agent of contact, inevitably fails, for no one will ever be able to read it, or at least read it properly. So I hope this sequence makes sense. It's a sort of melange of different images, but moving from references to the Golden Record, to the Tower of Babel, and then visually connecting it to images of human progress, the Great Wall, for example. And yet, I am unsatisfied with this conclusion, for both the record and the artifact are really out there, in space, waiting. They both, regardless of their divergent content, contain messages for an unknown reader in an unknown future. They both, including Peglin's artifact, despite the artist's assertions to the contrary, suggest a profound faith in communication. Indeed, any book created to be an agent of contact requires a belief in contact itself as a worthy ambition. Perhaps this is the most compelling meaning of these projects. They reflect on us, what we want to believe, that we want to believe. Reflecting on the golden record, Sagan recalls that it, quote, had provided us with a unique opportunity to view our planet, our species, and our civilization as a whole, and to imagine the moment of contact, end quote. For his part, Peglin is aware that a belief in contact is, quote, the exact opposite of what's considered a reasonable framework for a critical artist, end quote. And yet, he too embraces the potential. Quote, I think when we look at the golden record and say, it's naive, or it's so 1970s, it's a fine line between pointing out rightly problems with the meta gesture of the golden record and a nihilistic 
attitude towards the future that's widespread right now in culture, society, and politics." End quote. One final image, this from the artifact. It is a stone carved in 1950 by Carl Gustav Jung at his home in the Swiss countryside. It depicts a tiny humanoid carrying a lantern, a reference to the illumination of human knowledge surrounded by a mandala. The cryptic inscription in Greek draws from the Odyssey. Quote, this is Telesphoros, who traverses the dark regions of this cosmos and glows like a star out of the depths. He points the way to the gates of the sun and to the land of dreams, end quote. Ultimately, these agents of interstellar contact function like little telesphoros as beacons to the power of communication. Thank you. Should we stay up? Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the moderator and discussant for this panel. Isabel Hoffmeyer is professor of African literature at the University of the Witzwaterrand in Johannesburg and also global distinguished professor at New York University. She's the author of numerous articles, books, and edited volumes, including uh, Gandhi's Printing Press, Experiments in Slow Reading, published by Harvard University Press in 2013, and uh, the article Universalizing the Indian Ocean, uh, published in the PMLA in 2010. As these titles suggest, her most recent scholarship has explored textual circulation in the global south with a focus on the Indian Ocean. Her work more specifically addresses questions of Africa's intellectual place in the world and the material and aesthetic history of texts and their transnational circulation. Please welcome Professor Hoffmeyer. Um, good morning, everybody. Thank you to the organizers. Thanks for three fantastic papers. Thanks to you for coming. Um, I'll try and be fairly quick so we have some time for discussion. Um, I've really got three already, two and a half points. Um, and these pertain to empire, or rather empires, copyright and ecology. Now, with regard to books as agents of contact, really, as Hansen was saying at the beginning, empire has always loomed large. And one fairly standard approach has always been to consider how imperial communication networks have transported and disseminated inscribed objects. In such analyses, these objects are simply that, namely objects passively carried along by ship, barge, or dhow. But as the call for papers for this panel argues, how can one insert books more powerfully as agents in these networks? Um, and I think one approach, one, one route into this is to consider books as a form of soft power in empire. Um, in the case of European empires, books were taken as portable emblems of imperial power, as gifts of civilization, as containers of, new order, of a new order of knowledge, and indeed in some cases as miniature renditions of empire itself especially in the numerous miscellanies that cut and paste together bits and pieces of the imperial world between their covers. In a slightly different but related context of Christian missions, 
Books were often construed as powerful protagonists in the story of evangelism, textual agents who could seize uh, those that they encountered. So um, I've done it in a slightly different order, but uh, let me begin with John's paper. And I wondered whether the golden record and in fact also the artifact could be considered in this imperial frame, a last, in the case of the golden record, a last if comic gasp in this long tradition of the book as imperial emblem. The artifact is obviously apparently a critique or somewhat anti-imperial sense of this, but both of them, I think, um, you know, the, I suppose the question is, do they, uh, or can they usefully be placed in this tradition? Um, uh, are they both seen as some kind of odd imperial gift? Um, and does, do both of them form a kind of this genre of the miscellany that hubristically promised to reproduce the world between its covers um, uh, and, and so links, links it to these older imperial traditions. And just as a footnote, I was struck by the irony that just at the moment of all of these things going, you know, these objects going to space, um, space exploration is bringing us these pictures of the blue marble earth from afar, um, and yet at the same time, Sagan is using these scattershot, dispersed 19th century periodical forms. Um, and does part of the comedy of this entire adventure arise from this contrast, the serenity of the blue marble globe seen from afar versus the visual and sonic cacophony of the golden record. Now, moving on to the second theme of copyright, um, I, had, I went to trusty Wikipedia and read the entry on the golden record, which had a couple of um, interesting observations about copyright. And it indicated that Sagan wanted to include the Beatles' Here Comes the Sun, but couldn't get copyright permission, although the story is also discounted as an urban legend. The site also notes that Sagan conscientiously collected copyright on all these entries, not for the Golden Record itself, but for the CD-ROM version that appeared subsequently. So for the editor status of these reports, they do raise interesting questions about copyright and astral travel, um, which takes us, of course, onto Priyasha's paper. Um, and your consideration, I think, of Isis Unveiled raises this fascinating questions of how far material can travel if it's not copyrighted, or indeed if it is. Blavatsky's mode of composition, of course, forms, forms part of a long tradition of miraculous literacy where texts are revealed from the next world. And this constitutes part, I think, of this, you know, the enduring human fantasy of disembodied communication, and as your paper indicates in this form, in this case, takes the form of claiming divine inspiration while bad-mouthing technology in the form of stereotype <coughs> and slapdash proofreading. And I was wondering, my question really is, you could talk a bit more about Coleman, um, because, and particularly his ambitions and understanding of plagiarism, um, because it apparently also, thanks, thank you, Wikipedia, Wikipedia indicates that he had his own ambitions to write mystical texts. So what, was his, what did his understanding of plagiarism entail? Was it envy? Was it Blavatsky did not attribute her plundering? Was it that the quotation marks had gone astray? Or was there any indication that he had questions of intellectual property in mind? And if I could just say, listening to all of the papers, I was also struck by, again, John and Priyasha's paper of the theme of the alien. <coughs> um, and how, in fact, both of these enterprises 
are tied up with this business of creating aliens on Earth. So Poet uh, Blavatsky's imperial ambition um, creates, of course, in some ways is both imperial and anti-imperial at the same time, but also aids further colonization, um, as, as you indicated. And John, in your case, I was very struck by the cover uh, of the record, which reminded me a lot of Sun Ra and the images of Afrofuturism and those are d uh, discussions about alien. Um, so just moving on to David's paper, we return to the theme of empire, or in this case, instance, the space between empires or inter-imperiality, to use Laura Doyle's term. The life and the, uh, the you know the fascinating life and afterlives of this text um, that you discuss seem to take shape in a series of inter-imperial, uh, you know, inter-imperial spaces: um, Qing, Russian, French, Portuguese gunboats, imperialism visited on Japan, and so on. And I was just wondering if you thought there was much any traction to be gained from such an approach. Um, uh, you know, and these texts seem in some ways to be giving generic and material form um, to inter-imperial circumstances. And just linked to that, two quick points. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how the texts change. You know, what bits made it where, um, because obviously it's, you know, it, it must have been edited and excerpted a lot as it went. Um, and just linked to that, I was really fascinated when you showed your map of how does one map textual mobility. Um, and I've kind of grappled with this and had to do this in the past, and you, don't, you end up with these very unsatisfactory dots. Um, and I was just wondering if you thought a bit and had any ideas on that. And then just to conclude with my last half point, which relates to a conclusion uh, from David's paper, which he doesn't have time uh, to discuss, but apparently the Japanese collection and translation was funded by whaling money. Um, and I was completely fascinated by this, and of course there have been these increasing calls for us to reimagine literary studies less by period and genre than by the forms of energy which enable the texts to appear. And I think your conclusion raises the fascinating possibility that we might think of book history as an episode in whaling, or whaling as an episode in book history. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Professor Hoffmeyer, for um, these very, very rich comments. I thought in the remaining time, um, I think we have a little more than 10 minutes, um, perhaps some of the presenters would like to respond to some of Professor uh, Hoffmeyer's comments slash questions. Does anyone?
the Tibetan Mahatmas who dictated ISIS and Beirut also sent down these little missives about, you know, their um, about their ideas of Oriental philosophy, etc. And um, various people like Coleman, the people in the style of Coleman, sort of dissected these letters and found out that they were obviously not from the Tibetan Mahatmas. And also pointed out that the Tibetan Mahatmas, for example, spoke, he wrote perfect French, but were incapable of, you know, citing a bookless text accurately, which, you know, sort of, and Blavatsky obviously spoke fluent French. But one, in one of the defenses, that then the Mahatmas also sent down press-related letters in defense of their other letters, and said that one of, uh, one of the things that came up was that they said, that we of Tibet and China don't understand what the word plagiarism means, mm -hmm. and that if, and that they were being accused of plagiarism because they copied things from books that had been published in New York and London. And then one of the letters said that if this had been picked up from a, a text published in 14th century China, then we wouldn't have had the same problem at all, which is really interesting. And it, and, it, and I think it's also another example of the way in which Blavatsky and company sort of use these categories and mold them to their own convenient ends. So then suddenly they're embracing great, you know, uh, they're embracing a culture in a specific way by plagiarizing because, of course, you know, there is no plagiarism in China or Tibet or whatever. So, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> well, just to, to pick up on maybe the first remarks as well that you made about imperial versus anti-imperial. Um, I think that that's definitely the frame to see projects like the Golden Record. It's certainly an imperial project where it fits into that mold. And it's also worth pointing out that it's consistent with other visual projects from centuries. So um, to me, the most notable being the Family of Man exhibition, which uh, was organized by MoMA in New York and then circulated throughout the world and attempted to provide some sort of universal portrait of humanity through images. So, and that book was itself a source for Sagan, and he is, uh, for example, the Bushman Hunter's photograph comes directly from the um, Family of Man catalog. So he's building it in a consistent way. And the, the ironic thing is that by 1977, the Family of Man project was seen as imperial by our historians and our critics, and had really been rejected, and Sagan, perhaps as a scientist, less uh, you know, not uh, aware of those critiques, ends up repeating that gesture and all of, it, all of its pitfalls. Um, and I also, uh, I really like the way that you framed um, the serenity of space and um, the sort of sublime quality of seeing the Earth as a Blue Marble, for example. Um, and I think that is something fascinating about these projects, and maybe what I'm trying to get at is that um, even if the Golden Record is an imperial gesture and Pagelin's is this sort of biting, caustic critique of that gesture, they both participate in um, this sort of sublime fascination, just the idea that we could make contact is itself um, almost mystical in a sense. And so they can't avoid taking on some of that sublime quality, even if there's a critical component or a very sort of flawed portrait that they provide. So there's that tension for sure. Mm -hmm. motivating it. Mm -hmm. um, and then lastly, the issue of copyright. Uh, there, it's interesting, actually, in Sagan's papers, he did negotiate permissions. 
And the reason he wanted to negotiate the commissions, um, I'm not exactly certain it was necessary. I think that NASA actually did mandate that he negotiated, even for images sent out of space, in part because there are, I think, 11 copies of the record, and some of them are not sent to space, so there's only two actually in space, and NASA has a few of them, and maybe say it's a state, I can recall. The Smithsonian, I think, might have one. Um, so NASA reported, but also Sagan initially envisioned that the record would then be marketed and uh, you know put for sale, and that never happened because he couldn't get all of the rights cleared. So it just sort of sits in purgatory until um, there's a CD-ROM with some of the music that comes out later. There's now like new attempts uh, more recently to reissue the Golden Record. Um, and yes, the issue of copyright, because in the end, this record is really, as I mentioned, it's a terrestrial project, not an extraterrestrial one, so there's no way of escaping mm. that problem, I would say, which is ironic, for sure. We have only a few more minutes, so David, if you have a, um, some brief comments, so we'll be able to take some questions it's, from the audience as well. Right. Um, okay, I'll try to keep it short, although I, I really got at least three very big questions, so it's difficult to keep it short. <laughs> uh, one is about the inter-nuclear spaces. This is, this is, uh, I mean, I think this is a very obvious dimension of the talk. I didn't want to overplay the talk. Mm. One reason why I don't want to overplay is that, um, just just one example, um, the presence of Dutch language texts in Nagasaki can be seen, surely, from one perspective, as an outcome of some kind of blatantly colonial uh, Western presence in uh, Southeast and East uh, uh, Asia. Um, the, the, the monopoly companies of the, the English and Dutch East India companies are the sort of uh, the, the vanguard of, of formal empire that will come later in the 19th century. Uh, at the same time, if you if you are looking at it from the point of view of my agents, this uh, this warlord collector in Hirado and the Dutch interpreter in Nagasaki, in 1780s, the Dutch East India Company is basically an Amazon book delivery service. They are not empire. They are not all powerful white men. They are just conveniently suffered in the harbor once, uh, once upon a, you know, every now and again. And uh, they are convenient delivery uh, vehicle for, for books that they are interested in for their own purposes and for their own agendas. Uh, in that connection, also strikes me as remarkable that when we find a, a Japanese or a Bengali or a Chinese studying a Western text, we see that as an instance of Western influence, whereas when we find a Westerner at exactly the same time trying to decipher a Chinese or Bengali text, we see it as a scientific study of the, of the other. Um, whereas in that context, in that very situation, I don't think there's so much normative category of distinction. I mean, there are distinctions, obviously. Second, um, the uh, the unsatisfactory nature of the of the pictorial the visualization of this as a series of straight lines and dots is obvious. And I, I thought that the I was actually I didn't make it explicit in the presentation. I should have, but I was trying to make the point that uh, when we visualize the the uh, transmission of the text as a series of dots and straight lines. That actually is not a faithful depiction of what, at all what, of what is happening, and, and I was trying to undermine my own image by complicating the story at each of the stages, which are 
messy, accidental, contingent, uh, unpredictable, uh, not at all straight lines. Um, and um, last thing is, is the, the wedding line point. Thank you for that. I, I, I really like that, that little vignette uh, there. It's, it's a fact that the, the books in Agassiz were very expensive, obviously. Uh, and not everybody could afford to, to, to buy them. The, the, the person in question, Matsura Seizan, uh, was, was, a, uh, was a domain lord, a daimyo, but that still means he had to fight a stiff opposition of his uh, chief retainers, that he shouldn't be wasting so much money on such a trifling object as, as, as a Western book. Um, and he was fortunate that he had a windfall dividend to, to fall back on, and that was the that was the, uh, the the profits of a major whaling operation that was being run by uh, by a cooperative in in Tirado. It was really an industrial size uh, whaling operation. And of course, there's there's one one more of these of these contingencies that it's also whaling that was account you know that accounted for the increased incidence of Western presence of Japanese coasts because as um, the Pacific whale catch was dwindling, the, especially American whale whaling ships were venturing further and further to East Asian coasts, and by 1820s there were regular landfalls made by distressed uh, uh, you know, whaling ships uh, of, of American, with American crews mainly on uh, uh, a Japanese coastline, which ratcheted up the, the sense of crisis and geopolitical tension which led to interest in some of these Dutch language texts as source of information of what is going on in the complex, geopolitically complex outside world. Mm. Ah, Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, we've now entered technically the period of the coffee break. However, it's 45 minutes long, so perhaps we could take a couple questions from the audience. So then we can continue discussion over coffee. Thank you so much for, for really fantastic papers and comments too.